Thank you for downloading this episode of In Our Time. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. The late Middle Ages was a period when literature flourished across Europe as never before. Italy produced the masterpieces of Dante and Petrarch, English literature began in style with the works of Langland and Geoffrey Chaucer, and the medieval poets of Wales and France laid the foundations of great national literary traditions. But some of the richest and most original writing of the early Middle Ages was produced on a remote island in the North Atlantic that even today has a population slightly smaller than that of Leicester. Iceland was first settled in the 9th century by Vikings, and the deeds of these first Icelanders and their families are recorded in the Icelandic sagas. Around 40 of these sagas, written down between the 13th and 14th centuries, are known to exist. They're dramatic tales which mix the domestic, the historical and the supernatural as they chart the feuds and love affairs of early Icelandic life. With me to discuss the Icelandic sagas are Caroline Larrington, fellow and tutor in medieval English literature at St John's College, Oxford, Elizabeth Ashman Rowe, University Lecturer in Scandinavian History at the University of Cambridge, and Emily Lethbridge, Postdoctoral Researcher at the Arne Magnusson Manuscripts Institute in Reykjavik. Caroline Larrington, I mentioned Icelandic, uh, that Iceland was founded by Norse settlers in the 9th century. Why did they go there? Well, according to their own origin myth, their own histories, the Norwegians migrated from Norway because King Harald Fairhair was centralising power there. He was uniting the Norwegian kingdoms and various members of the aristocracy took against this. And Iceland, having just been discovered, they decided to try their luck in a completely new country. But there was also quite an admixture of Scandinavians from the British Isles also moved to Iceland um, bringing with them uh, a Celtic injection into the Icelandic population as well. So quite a lot of the women in particular seem to have come from the Celtic uh, islands of Britain. And they found a central mass which was barren, uh, except for geezers, uh, fuming geezers. And around the ages, though, uh, land that was very sympathetic to the way they lived their lives. Yes, well, you can imagine that the uh, Western Norway, where in particular they came from, was a steep field landscape and there was lots of lush farmland. We're told that there was also forest in Iceland when the um, Norwegians first arrived there, but if there was, it seems to have been cut down very quickly. But there was certainly, particularly in the south and in the west, some very good land for, for farming. And, of course, the climate was slightly better in those days. And you say the aristocrats went. How many? What have we, t- have we any idea in the 9th century of the numbers and... Um, I think it's very difficult to establish that, and and figures vary enormously. But it was sort of households would pack up and and sail off in their their boats, some members of the household resisting, it has to be said. So you're suggesting almost a political act at the beginning, getting away from a man man who's centralising their country, getting out of his power, but also finding new land. Yes, and what they set up in Iceland, of course, was a rather different kind of polity from what they had at home in Norway. They brought their own laws with them, but, of course, they didn't have a king and they were, I think, quite anxious to keep it that way. So they instituted a system of, in the end, 36 chieftaincies and they had local assemblies for sorting out local legal matters. And then once a year, everybody would meet at the Althingi, the the big general assembly, where serious lawsuits were discussed. The the earliest sagas seem to have been written down, first written down in the 13th century, around about three or four hundred years after the Vikings arrived. Um, 
had I, did it, had it changed much in those 400 years, population growth? Had, it been, had there been any dramatic changes? Well, of course, the, the most striking change in that time is the arrival of Christianity, um, either in the year 999 or the year 1000. And that, at least according to the Icelandic historians, um, resulted in a more or less overnight conversion to Christianity, that everybody at the Althingi decided on a vote, more or less, that it would be better for the country to have a single religion, and that would be Christianity. It also got the King of Norway off their backs, to some extent, because he was very keen on converting them. And, of course, with Christianity came writing, came Latin literature, came access to the European culture, and um, that made possible, eventually, the writing of sagas, though some other texts, history, saints' lives and so on, were being written before then. Elizabeth Rowe, there are various different types of sagas. So in these early stages, can you explain what different sorts of sagas there are? Yes, certainly. The modern classifications of sagas is based on their subject matter. So there are groups of sagas about Scandinavian kings, about Icelandic bishops, about saints of all kinds. Also, there are a group of sagas about heroes of chivalry, such as King Arthur and Charlemagne. There's another group of sagas about the heroes of Germanic legend, such as Sigurd the Dragon Slayer, and also heroes from the early Viking Age, such as Ragnar Shaggybreeks. And then there are sagas about the other North Atlantic settlements, such as the Orkney Islands, the Faroes, Greenland, and even North America. And then centrally important are the sagas about Iceland itself. So these are about events that take place in the period between the settlement in the ninth century going up into um, going up to the loss of independence in the 13th century. So of the sagas um, taking place in Iceland, of course, critical are the ones um, that takes place in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries about the Icelanders' own ancestors. These are often called the family sagas because they're multi-generational, um, the original epic sweeping dramas of emotion um, and and violence. And then within those sagas of Icelanders, there are some subgroups. There are a number of sagas whose protagonists are poets, and there are another group of sagas whose protagonists are outlaws. So you mentioned the uninhabitable interior, and so there are dramatic sagas about men who are outlawed. They don't leave Iceland. They're not exiled, but they try to survive um, in these uninhabitable areas or on the fringes of society. The other family sagas, are the family sagas the most numerous? Well, there are I think that's about right. There are at least 40 of them. Um, but, well, the sagas of the uh, Germanic heroes and the Viking Age heroes, there are actually quite a large number of those as well. But certainly the family sagas must be among the no- most numerous um, of these groups. When we talk about family sagas, are we reverting to what Caroline <coughs> was saying about they being from the aristocracy? We, we read it in the 13th century. There were something like 30 or 40 chieftains uh, are those families still uh, leading the way, uh, even in the sagas as well as in the in the polity of the country? For the most part, yes. Um, saga writing changed over over time, so the sagas written at the beginning of the 13th century can be quite different from the sagas written at the end. 
Um, and so certainly the interests of those leading families um, feature prominently in a number of sagas, um, such as the saga of Eil, son of Skatlagrimur. Um, and that's a saga which is supposed to have been written by one of the leading chieftains of Iceland. Um, but then there are also sagas that um, are more satirical, that poke fun at the chieftains, for example. And one thing that certainly happens over that historical period is that power is concentrated in Iceland. And so of the original 36 or 39 chieftains, um, once you get to the first part of the 13th century, power is concentrated into the hands of just really um, half a dozen families. So it's whittled down to a, a very strong hierarchy. We, we, we're going to talk <clears throat> here, we're talking here about an oral tradition. Before they were written down, we have three or four hundred years, three and fifty years, something like that, of these sagas passing uh, through history orally. Can you talk about that? Because that's, on these programs, I find that's generally thought of as a much lower level of evidence, but I'm not so sure sometimes. Well, it depends on how you look at it. It's probably not the case that the long sagas, as we have them written down in the manuscripts, that they were not transmitted word for word over these centuries. But very often the sagas do have a historical core of um, events about actual people. And of course, the more dramatic the events were, the more likely they were to be remembered or if there are events in somebody's family, those stories get passed down. Um, in addition to the narrative in the family sagas, genealogies are often included. And so these are another way that the Icelanders remembered their their history, their own ancestry in, in the oral period. Another aspect of sagas that goes back to the oral transmission are the verses that are found in sagas, because a number of the family sagas include verses that are composed on the spot. Um, and so these are important in the narrative to possibly reveal the emotions, for example, of the characters. But the way in which the verses are composed is a very complex, tightly woven piece of poetry, which makes it mo very likely that they were preserved pretty much as they were composed. Are there any reflections on the early written versions of what happened before the written versions? Do any of the writers say, we owe a debt to, or this comes from the family of, that sort of thing? No, they don't say it in those in those terms. Um, Icelandic histories that are not in the form of sagas, um, histories such as the Book of the Icelanders, written by Ari Thorkelson in the beginning of the 12th century, he actually talks about his sources. Um, and he says, I heard this from my foster father who remembered being baptized at the age of three, something like that. Or in the King's sagas, um, the author of Heimskringla, Snorri Sturluson, talks about um, his sources as the report of men who we consider wise and truthful, and they believe these things to be true. And he also talks about the use of court poetry um, as, as an important source. He says that we have to essentially believe what this poetry says because it's recited before the people who took part in these events and they would know if it wasn't true or not. And so any deviation from the truth would be mockery and not praise. Emily Nesbridge, the sagas are preserved in medieval manuscripts. Uh, Caroline's pointed out that Christianity came to Iceland in about the year 1000, is that right? Um, can you tell us how they were preserved in the medieval manuscripts and by whom? Sure. Well, we have about 400 or so manuscripts from the medieval period, um, by which we mean the 13th century um, through to about 1550. 
Of these 400 or so manuscripts that contain saga texts, about 60 contain the texts of these sagas of Icelanders or family sagas. But um, these 60-odd manuscripts aren't um, most of them whole. A lot of them are just fragmentary, so a few leaves here and there. Um, So in the 11th century, the technologies of uh, book production and writing um, came to Iceland, were introduced by by clerics, um, and uh, the writing of literature began to be... um, began to uh, come into effect then. Um, but in fact, there's a gap between the time when we know that people must first have been writing these texts down and the evidence that we have today. So the earliest fragment of a saga manuscript dates to about 1250, and that's just a, a single leaf. And um, do were they, were, they put, were they produced in monasteries? Were there a few monasteries there? Can you, and just like some idea of the, of the physical context... Well, they would have, um, for the most part, have been produced um, by professionally trained uh, scribes who would have been um, clerics, and centres of book production would, for the most part, have been um, monasteries or religious houses, perhaps um, perhaps priests attached to churches that were set up um, by wealthier, the wealthiest chieftains. So, uh, a handful of kind of of, of key centres of production where we know a number of manuscripts, where we know there were a number of scribes producing manuscripts. Um, but for, for the great part, we don't know where most of these manuscripts we have were written. It's very difficult to date them precisely, and we don't know for the most part who actually wrote them. But we know there were, you call it book production. What, what do you mean, what, what, in this case, by book production? What, book, what was the book like? The book um, was made from parchment, um, mostly, well, we think, calfskin or vellum, um, and producing a book or a a codex, um, a manuscript, was an enormously time-consuming and costly enterprise. Um, The the parchment obviously comes from from calfskin, so uh, firstly we have the whole process of preparing the parchment before um, it's possible to write on it. And then scribes um, producing ink from uh, natural ingredients and um, spending many, many hours painstakingly copying out these texts. We've we've talked, uh, Elizabeth Rowe was telling us that that, that quite a number, perhaps uh, an effectively bigger number than any other, besides about domestic events, as it were, domestic subjects. Can you give listeners one idea from some examples, one or two ideas of what these subjects are? Well, um, from if we look at the manuscripts that we that survive, um, so there are some 35, 40 or so of these family sagas, and um, a number of manuscripts contain uh, two or more sagas. Um, the golden age of manuscript production really was the 14th century, and from then, um, a manuscript called Mother of Atlebok, um is one of the most famous manuscripts. And this is a manuscript, it's a large, heavy um, volume, and it contains 11 sagas of Icelanders. Um, the organisation of these texts is quite interesting because uh, seven of these sagas are um, organised geographically. So um, the sagas, well, one thing that hasn't been mentioned is that um, most of these sagas are very local um, in character, uh, and they kind of focus on a specific local area. 
um, and the sagas in this Mavaratli Bog manuscript um, of chart around the country, sort of east to east to west, um, and the material is organised that way. Caroline Langton, just pursue, Caroline Langton, just pursuing this, could you give us just a rough idea of what the stories are about? Well, in some ways, I think it's it's not too much of a generalisation to say that lawsuits are critical to sagas, and perhaps that's the the context in which the the earliest oral forms might have survived in accounts of what happened in a particular case. Um, so, what would be typical, I guess, would be a feud starting between two groups of people, um, usually perhaps quite minor people, but then it escalates into a power battle between two families. And then there's a kind of crisis. Somebody very important gets killed. The case comes to the Alfingi. And one of the problems, I suppose, about the Icelandic setup is that you have a very complex law system. You don't have any executive power to put legal findings into force. So whether somebody is made an outlaw or whether somebody is fined really depends on whether somebody's got the muscle to go around and enforce it. And so feuds very often escalate uh, until the point comes where the killing has to stop and there's some kind of of settlement. Uh, Perhaps somebody from one side marries somebody else and then everything calms down again. So that, I think, is a kind of broad outline of quite a number of sagas. But at the same time, you have all sorts of extraordinary bits of domestic detail in the in the middle of them, like a, one feud which kicks off at some level, really, because one woman is a bad housekeeper and she sends her slave to steal cheese from somebody else's pantry. And when her husband finds out, he slaps her and a very long way down the line. He, he pays for that with his life. The, were, were, the, were they influenced, the sagas, by other literatures? I said they were early Middle Ages and rather later on... The European countries began their surge forward in their in their vernacular. Were these influenced by any other literatures? Um, certainly, we can find traces of of Latin learning in them, and increasingly, um, now that quite a lot of study is beginning to focus on the translations of Arthurian romances in Norway. These got from Norway across to Iceland, and they're preserved. Many of them in Icelandic manuscripts. The idea, perhaps, that emotion and interiority and really talking about love in the kind of express way may have come from the romances into some of the sagas. Generally the sagas don't talk about um, love in the kind of terms that you'd recognise but in one saga, Lakstila saga, which is very interested in love, both love of two foster brothers for one another and the kind of complicated love between one particular woman and the, the men that she marries the word love begins to be mentioned quite a lot. So there's, there's certainly, I think, a sense in Laxdala saga that something has changed in saga writing at that point. Elizabeth Rowe, what about, what about the influence of the Bible? Christianity came in, therefore, one presumes the Bible came in, and they heard it, even if they couldn't read it. Um, what do we find that... That was about a, a year, a thousand, we got 300 years on, they're writing it down. Can we note any influence from the Bible in the sagas? Yeah, <clears throat> yes, I would say we definitely can. Um, one aspect of medieval Christianity that was very important to the Icelanders was the fact that what 
is called Salvation History, the span of time from God's creation to, to doomsday, was regarded as being divided into two halves. Um, and the turning point is, of course, the incarnation of Christ. And so the early half is the time of the Old Testament, and the time after Christ is essentially the Christian age, the time of the New Testament. And events in the Old Testament period were thought to foreshadow and look forward towards their Christian perfection. And so in Scandinavia, in a place with a long pagan history, um, the arrival of Christianity, the conversion, was often seen as a historical dividing line that turned Scandinavian history into a kind of Old Testament period and then a Christian era. And so because Scandinavian writers, Icelanders, didn't like the idea of their ancestors burning in hell because they didn't have the opportunity to become good Christians... Icelandic saga authors sometimes um, uh, portrayed their ancestors as, as virtuous pagans or divided their sagas into two halves with the conversion of Iceland coming in the middle. Njal saga, for example, which is one of the great feud sagas, is divided in this way. But it's also possible to see specific allusions to events in the Bible as well. Can you give us an example? Yeah, certainly. There's a smaller feud saga, the saga of a man called Ravenkel. And so the feud begins with a scene that's very much like what happens in the what happens in paradise when God says to Adam and Eve of this tree, thou shalt not eat the fruit of. And so there's an Icelandic chieftain, a pagan, who has uh, devoted his livestock, in particular his favorite wonderful stallion to the fertility god Freyr. And he made a vow that nobody should ride this horse, and if they do, they have to be killed. And so at one point he hires a shepherd to guard his sheep, and he says, you can ride any of my horses except this one. If you ride this one horse, um, you will die. And so, of course, events transpire that the sheep stray off. The shepherd has to find a horse. The only horse that will stand still for him is this one stallion. He rides it, and of course... The the chieftain kills him. So it's very interesting that the saga author um, portrays or depicts or puts this Icelandic chieftain in the position of God in Genesis. Emily Lethbridge, you mentioned it earlier, but maybe you could tell us a little bit more about how the sagas are influenced by the geography of Iceland, the regional nature of them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think the landscape, when we think about the landscape and the sagas, actually there are two um, two dimensions to this. Firstly, the preservation or the transmission of the sagas, these stories, anecdotes about um, notable characters or events um, and the, the, the way that the landscape, the Icelandic landscape, held these stories. Are we still able to trace back, or were they still in the 13th century maybe, are we still able to trace back families to those families that were there at the time? They were talking about their own immediate ancestors. They were, um, and in fact, um, every Icelander to today really can trace their ancestry back to the very first settlers in the ninth century. So genealogy has always been extremely important to Icelanders. Um, genealogy combined, I would say, with um, a very strong uh, sense of, of local belonging and identity. Um, so on the one hand, uh, you have the, the texts of the sagas that are preserved in the manuscripts. And on the other hand, I think very much you can um, see how how these stories did live in the landscape, the landscape, um, the hills, cliffs, rivers, uh, natural features of the landscape being sort of mnemonics for um, characters and events um, and particularly place names which commemorate characters whose stories are told in more uh, detail in these sagas. 
And Caroline Larrington, one of the best known is a saga you've already mentioned, uh, Lex Dolage, is that how you pronounce it? Lex Dolage, saga. That's right. Mm. Can you just give us a bit more detail? We haven't yet had uh, a saga told in... Well, we had, have I checked? We have with the Old Testament. You know, so. but give us a bit more detail there, then we've got some idea of what, what, well, what's going I, on. I suppose the central story in Laxile, though there's quite a long prelude which explains um, the genealogies of the characters and, and, in a sense, how the hero Kyatan is brought up as the, the favourite and rather favourite and, and sort of blessed son of the, the household. And the story um, centres really about a kind of betrayal. Kyatan has a foster brother called Botley and before he goes off on a kind of rite of passage trip to Norway, Kyatan has been, become involved with a very spirited young woman called Gudrun. Uh, Gudrun wants to go to Norway with the foster brothers, but it's out of the question for a, an unmarried woman to travel alone, so she's left behind. And when Kyatan and Botley get to Norway, Kyatan very soon makes friends with the king and converts to Christianity, and Botley, I think, feels somewhat left out. Um, Botley decides to go back to Iceland and takes no greeting from Kyatan to Gudrun. Uh, Gudrun is rather hurt by this, and then very soon Botley shows his hand by making a bid to to marry Gudrun, and Gudrun's father gives her to him. So when Kyatan comes back, he's heartbroken to find that the woman that he loves and the foster brother who he loves have betrayed him in this way. And it's only a matter of time, really, before either Kyatan kills Botley or Botley kills Kyatan. And in the end, it's Botley who kills Kyatan, uh, who more or less offers himself to Botley and says, if anyone kills, kills me, I'd rather it was you. But of course, once Kyatan is dead, things don't rest there because Kyatan's brothers will then kill Botley. And when Botley is killed, Gudrun is pregnant. And as one of the slayers wipes her husband's blood on her apron, um, she laughs and they ask each other, the killers ask each other why this is the case. And the one who wiped the blood on the apron says, I think my killer is under that apron, still in the womb. And so 18 or so years later, sure enough, Botley Botlason, the baby that was in the womb, grows up to kill um, the killer and a couple of the others, not, in fact, Kyatan's brothers. Um, that the, the, the killing is quite selective. And, and this woman, Gudrun, who's really at the heart of the saga, marries four times, and we hear about four different husbands, some of whom she loved and some of whom she didn't particularly. And at the end, Botley, her son, asks her whom she loved most, and she says very famously, the one I love most was the one to whom I was worst. And that's all she said. And the assumption, of course, is it's not any of her husband's, but it was Kyatan. A lot goes on, doesn't it, really? Yes, it's a, a lot of incidents. <laughs> a lot of incidents. Can I come back to you? Did you, want to, did you make an intervention? Yeah, I, I just wanted to add, um, a lot certainly goes on. And, and what is uh, one of the remarkable things about these sagas is that... Um, you know, almost all of the places named in these sagas, all of these farmsteads and the, the locations where these uh, dramatic, passionate, bloody events that Caroline has just been describing, um, you know, we, we know and we can visit and see the, the specific sites um, of, of all of this action. Um, the place where Kyatan is said to have been slain by Botley, for example, and there's a large stone uh, not far from a road um, that runs through this part of the country, uh, a stone that bears the name of Kyatan State. And this stone is mentioned in the saga. It's uh, the stone against which um, Botley, or Kyatan puts his back while he's defending himself against Botley's attack. Um, so it's, a, it's an extraordinary 
uh, I think you in Iceland you have this extraordinary coming together of written texts and stories and the, their physical locations. Elizabeth Rowe, you want to come? Yes, in? it's also worth mentioning that Lakstaila Saga has a good example of this sort of religious prefiguration in it because when Kjartan goes to Norway, one of the first things that happens to him is that he finds himself on the shore involved in a swimming contest with a man who turns out to be quite strong and succeeds in ducking him in the water several times. And then once they they end the contest and go back on the shore and dry off. The man comes over and and offers him a cloak and says, here, you should have a gift for being such a strong swimmer. And it turns out to be King Olaf Tryggvason, the first missionary king of Norway. And so that that contest in the water and and the ducking under is interpreted as a kind of uh, foreshadowing of the baptism that Kjartan will soon choose. And the gift of the cloak cloak prefigures the baptismal robes um, that, that he will receive. So there's definitely a religious element in that historical perspective um, appears as well. And if I could just come back in on on the earlier part of Laxdala Saga, it does show the the kind of Celtic influence because Kjartan's father is somebody called Olavur Pau and Olavur's mother is an Irish slave who is um, picked up by the great-grandfather in his travels um, brought home much to the annoyance of his legitimate wife, it must be said. And the um, Mel Corker, the Irish slave, never speaks to anybody, but she speaks to her son when he's born and she teaches him Irish. And it turns out that she's, in fact, the kidnapped daughter of the Irish king. And her son makes a journey back to Ireland, speaking his Irish and describing his mother and although you would think that every slave would turn out to be an Irish princess in disguise, the Irish recognise her and her old nurse um, agrees with the story. And so Olava comes back to Iceland, not just the, the son of a slave, but the, the son of an Irish princess and his standing um, appreciates accordingly. And that in some ways is why Kjartan has quite such a high opinion of himself, that he's from aristocracy on both sides, it turns out. Emily Lethbridge, could you tell us briefly something about outlaws because of the outlaw sagas, but we haven't got a great deal of time. Anyway, there you sure. are, outlaws. Well, there are three of these outlaw sagas, um, and they share uh, structural features in common. Essentially, they're biographies of these uh, mm. three outlaw figures. Um, these are They're amongst the most popular of the family sagas um, and possibly because the figure of the outlaw hero seems to have a sort of universal appeal if we think of Robin Hood or you know, many other examples of medieval heroes but these sagas basically tell the stories um, of these men the events leading up to their um, outlawry, the years which they survive on the run in Iceland in Greta's case um, in the highlands in the comp- very inhospitable um central wastes of Iceland and these sagas end with uh, with these characters' deaths and then um, are, the deaths are followed up by vengeance chapters in which uh, family members uh, perpetrate further killings in order to avenge the deaths of these, uh, these heroic outlaws. Because as I understand it, once you're made an outlaw, anybody can kill you without being 
charged in, in any way. Right. And Greta particularly holds up with his brother in, in a supposedly inaccessible, top of an inaccessible right. mountain, and either a lazy slave or a careless, carelessness on his part of his brother leaves the ladder, down, the ladder down one day, and those who are after him climb mm. it and kill him and his brother. Well, Greta, he dies actually on this, um, it's an island, a sort of bastion yeah. fortress island in the north of, off the north of Iceland. Um, and combination of, of witchcraft, um, curses and sorcery and carelessness on this slave's um, part lead to Greta's uh, death after a, a, a lengthy, prolonged and very bloody final battle on this island. Caroline, can you give us any... I think the most difficult question of all, really, because very few of us know Icelandic. Uh, I put my hand up, don't know none at all. But still, the, the, can you, how do you describe the language? What would you... Um, the language of the sagas is generally very um, clear and very objective. Um, and saga style is sort of famously one in which the the narrator of the saga doesn't have a particularly distinctive voice. So he tells you what people say... He tells you what they do, but he doesn't very often tell you what they're thinking and you have to judge that from their actions and their speech. Sometimes he will give a sense of whether something is ethically right or wrong by saying, and people in the district thought this was a bad idea, or many men said that this man had behaved badly. But he's, the saga author is not judgmental himself. And as Elizabeth mentioned earlier, sometimes it seems as if the, the very dense poetry which punctuates many of the sagas and which is said to be uttered in the middle of a battle, say, by somebody, gives some sense of, of the violence or the, the internal turmoil or the, the joy of battle or the, the sorrow of the aftermath, which the, the narrator doesn't actually express in his own voice. But basically, we're talking about the Norse group of languages, aren't really? And it, it did stretch quite a way because in the there's a very good account in the Second World War. This is a digression, excuse me. <laughs> but uh, people, soldiers from Cumberland, went to in the northwest of England, went to Iceland on some sort of training exercise and found that the Cumbrian dialect, which at that time was entirely Norse, made them quite easily after a few weeks understood in Iceland. So we're talking about that grouping. It will get you a long way, I think. Icelandic is essentially a North Germanic language, whereas English is, in origin, a West Germanic language. But um, there, are, there are certainly many dialect words in the Northern dialects which are the same, and there's a, a kind of fundamental recognisability. Yeah, well, one, one thing to note is because of the Viking settlement in the British Isles, um, there are parts of England that have quite a lot of words derived from Norse, as Caroline said. But also, it's not surprising that when the Vikings settled down in England, they became farmers. And so those dialect words have to do with farming and animals and so forth. And, and, and so And landscape indeed. So those are the words that would be most likely understood by the Cumbrians in, in Iceland during the Second World War. While I'm with you, can you give us some idea of how women are generally portrayed? We've had one rather vivid example from Caroline, but can you tell us how women are generally portrayed in the sagas? Yes. Um, like the male characters, the women um, are portrayed in a lifelike manner. They are rarely completely good, completely bad. Um, they all have mixed characteristics. One of the important aspects of Icelandic society is that women really had little legal standing. They could not participate in legal affairs. They could not hold chieftaincies. Um, really their main sphere of responsibility was in the farm. And so 
that meant that if they were going to act in the public sphere, they had to act through their male relatives and they would, being people of of honor and reputation as much as the men were, they would really do anything to um, get done what they felt had to be done. So we have women of, of great strength, um, but also women who behave badly. Uh, Emily Lesbridge, can you tell us what, if any, the role of the supernatural plays in the sagas? There's a, well, there's a great deal of um, supernatural activity, actually, in the sagas. Uh, it varies from one saga to another, but we have, um, well, I mentioned curses, sorcery, witchcraft, that kind of supernatural magic on the one hand. And then also uh, a number of sagas, including these outlaw sagas, describe um, fights that these the main characters have with living dead uh, sort of zombies, ghosts, men that come back, f- refuse to lie quietly yeah. and come mm. back from their graves. Um, we have well, the use of, of dreams and prophecy is found throughout the sagas and is used in many cases as a kind of structural anticipatory device. Um, and there is a sense that uh, you know the, the paranormal, the supernatural, is is more of uh, a, more of a central if not everyday part of people's existence um part of of life then in the medieval period or at least in the the society portrayed by the sagas then there is then it is certainly today caroline can i ask you if you if there's any way of judging the balance between fact and fiction in these domestic sagas well as elizabeth mentioned earlier we do have um some texts which look more like histories um there's the book of icelanders and in particular the book of settlements which exists in different versions and the book of settlements tells us about the original settler families where they settled and has some stories of lawsuits feuds and various other notable incidents so it's possible to check many of the details in the sagas against the book of settlements and sometimes we find that somebody didn't belong to one generation but belonged to another and we sometimes find no record of somebody in which case we we suspect that perhaps the saga author has made this person up for their own purposes so in some ways, it, I think it would be correct to say the sagas are broadly historical novels, that they, they must invent a great deal of dialogue, which nobody has, has um, really preserved from 200 years ago in its exact form, though there are clearly some pithy last words or, or famous things that people say, which I think could be passed down over 200 years. And clearly the supernatural elements as well are perhaps not necessarily something that we would dis- would regard as, as true in the sense that uh, um, somebody being burnt alive in their farm is true. Elizabeth Rowe. We can also get another source of corroboration from the Icelandic law code of the mm. period known as Graugas or Grey Goose, and so we can compare the laws that pertained at the time to the saga description of them, and sometimes we do find discrepancies and anomalies, and so clearly a later writer has been substituting the law of their own time for the law of the earlier Commonwealth period. Emily Lethbridge, do we, could, could we say that the sagas played a role in Icelandic society, and if so, what was it? I think the sagas um, were they're central to um, the construction of Icelandic identity. Identity actually is at the one of the key um, motivations that presumably drove people to write these stories down in the first place. Um, 
And right up until the, in the 19th century, for example, the sagas, Njal saga in particular, um, these sagas were used as sort of political propaganda, almost part of the, the fight for um, Icelandic independence from Denmark. Um, so the sagas, they've always had a very important role as entertainment. Um, over the centuries, up until the 19th, 20th century, they were read aloud in sort of winter, evening, communal um, communal uh, gatherings. And um, and they really are at the heart of at the heart of, of Icelandic identity and culture. Um, Caroline, uh, Caroline Larrington, that we forgot to say that Norway conquered, as it were, Iceland, well, conquered Iceland in the uh, early Middle Ages, and uh, Iceland seems to have kept its distance, and then Denmark, they all came together, and it was Denmark which was really in charge. It doesn't seem to have much, had, had much influence uh, in, in the sense of, grinding them down or making them different. And the remarkable thing is the continuation of these sagas until when Iceland went for independence in 1944, one of the first things they did was they wanted their sagas back from Copenhagen and after about 30 years they got some, more of them back. A huge section of the population stood on the docks waiting for the sagas to land. Yes, this is in 1971, finally, that... um two absolutely vital manuscript collections, the Poetic Edda, which contains mythological and heroic poetry, and Flatair Bulk, which is a big collection of various texts, including a lot of sagas, came back to Iceland on an Icelandic destroyer and were welcomed by vast crowds who came down to the docks to see them. And nowadays, um, where Emily works in Iceland, the manuscripts which pertain to Icelandic matters are now all kept in Reykjavik, and the manuscripts which are more to do with Scandinavian or or Danish matters in particular live in a a sister institute in Copenhagen. But it's certainly the case that wherever you go in Iceland, people will come up and tell you about the sagas that took place in in the spot where you are and, and retell you the stories. They're still living in the landscape. How, finally, Elizabeth, how important are the sagas still, more than a thousand years on, to Icelandic identity? Um, the sagas are extremely, extremely important, um, not only as Caroline and Emily have been describing, are they a crucial part of uh, the Icelandic identity and considered cultural treasures, but also in the wider Scandinavia area, the sagas are very important. I mentioned the group of sagas about the heroes of the Viking Age, for example, and so these are all heroes who come from outside of Iceland. So, um, so there are Norwegian heroes such as uh, Fritjof, for example, um, who are still cultural cultural treasures in the 19th century, very valuable. And also the saga's construction of the larger Scandinavian world is still considered important by the Scandinavians today. Well, thank you very much, Elizabeth Rowe, Caroline Larrington and Emily Lethbridge. Next week we were talking about cosmic rays, radiation from outer space. Thank you very much for listening. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.